So let's pick up in John chapter 6, where we left off from our first reading this morning. Turn there with me, if you would, and uh, stand, and let's hear John 6, verses 41 through 59. So remember that what we've read so far is that Jesus has uh, just fed 5,000 people. The crowds were looking for him. He, he came back, and he had said this profound statement um, where he said, I, I am the bread of life. And he goes on in verses 41, and the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as the, fa- the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he called as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word, and it is absolutely true, and it's given to us this day in love. Let's pray. Bread of heaven, feed us until we want no more. Help us. There's so much here. We could spend an entire sermon series just on this sermon itself. To help us with what is most needful at this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So over the next 
seven or so weeks that I have with you in this series, we're going to be looking at the I am statements of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to realize that these sermons will be different than sermons that you might get out of one of the epistles. We just spent time in the epistle of 1 John, where John is giving instructions to the church on how to live. The difference for us in these sermons and in these texts is that it is not so much, um, so then what do I do? It is an opportunity for us as a body of believers to behold who Jesus is to get to know him by gazing upon himself and receiving how he has revealed himself to his people. Now, some of you may be able to identify with this, but I remember over the course of my school, um, whether it be in grade school, in college, or even in seminary, I, I didn't connect well with professors who simply just lectured. It seemed that the professors that I connected the best with were the professors that I actually knew. These guys who were friends of mine, where we would go and um, sit at a pub together and try and un- unpack some of the deep, deep complexities of life, or why the Orlando Magic simply couldn't have a decent NBA team. It was the people that I knew sitting on the back porch of one of the lecture halls in my college where we were talking about the implications of the gospel for our lives and how we could pray for one another. You see, friends, I believe that it is not enough for us to simply say that Jesus was a good teacher. I don't think we connect necessarily with him at that level. His desire for the people then and for us now is to connect with his heart, to know who he actually is, to to believe him, not just because of the fact that he is the Lord, not just because he is simply the, uh, the, the, the son of God, the incarnate one, but also because he is beautiful and he is good. And so this series is an opportunity for us to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. This Christ who was um, attested in the the prophets of old, who has uh, revealed himself in his epiphany, who has shown himself to be the faithful son of God in his life and his earthly ministry, who has has been the the spotless lamb of God, who who went to the cross for the the sake of the sins of God's people, who, who suffered the pangs and the pain of death, who went into the grave and was raised on the third day and is now reigning and and ruling at God's right hand. This Jesus, this is an opportunity for us to gaze upon him, to see his beauty. Jesus took upon his lips seven different times in John's gospel, in John's recording of Jesus' life, I am. This is the divine name. There's a reason why the Jehovah's Witnesses have changed. This isn't one of the the I am statements of Jesus. This was just Jesus attesting to who he is. In John chapter 8, verse 58, where they say, who are you? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jehovah's Witnesses have changed their Bibles to read, before Abraham was, I have always been. Because for them, 
it destroys their entire theological system for Jesus to be co-eternal with God, for Jesus to be the incarnate son of God, for Jesus to be the second person of the Trinity. So they wouldn't change the Greek. When Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I'm the Lord. And as the Lord, I am the true bread of life. You'll recall with me that Jesus had just fed the multitudes. He had just fed 5,000 people, and they were, they were hungry. They had just gotten an incredible meal. So they come back seeking him. If we were to try and divide this text up and create some sort of working outline where we could walk through it, we might talk about the, um, the evangelical nature of the gospel, its invitation to, for you to come, the ecumenical nature of the gospel, it is, it's, it's spread to all people, and the Eucharistic nature of the gospel, that it is... God's continual feeding of his people that gives them life. That seemed like a lot of E words, so I went with height and breadth and depth instead, but that's where we're effectively going. Because we get into, um, we get into Jesus's welcoming of the people, and, and look at what happens. On the next day, after they were all fed, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got onto the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You know, this is, as I read this, I was encouraged. Because for so many times, the way that I approach Jesus is that my, um, my intentions must be right before I come to Jesus. I have to have gotten everything just so. And I know you've heard me say this before, but I'll reiterate it. I think many times to our peril, we've also said this about his table. That we have to have everything just so before we can come to Jesus. Because if there's any impure motive in us at all, we will be struck down with holy lightning because that's how God rolls. So we've heard. But look at how Jesus receives them. He doesn't turn them away. He does expose them. But not to shame them. He says, you're not coming to me because, you're not coming to me, not because you saw signs, but because you had a great meal. Their motives and ours for seeking Jesus are always mixed and tainted at best. And Jesus asks them and asks us the same question. Why, why are you really here? What are you hoping that Jesus will do for you? And you don't have to think about the, you don't have to get the Sunday school answer right in order to be admitted in to play the game. 
It is okay. It is okay to say, I don't know who Jesus is, and I want to know if he's for real. It is okay for you to say, my life is a mess, and I'm hoping that Jesus can do something about it. It is okay for you to say, I struggle with doubt and disbelief every day, and I just come hoping that something's true. Do you understand that Jesus knew their motives and they didn't have a clue of who he was? And he welcomed them back. Do you understand that it's okay for you too to not have a clue who Jesus is and still be welcome to come and explore who he is? Why are you really here? What are you really seeking? And, and it's not as if Jesus is saying, all right, now that you've kind of got the, you know, the answer to that question, why you're here, go away Get your act together and come back when your motives are pure. He's not doing this. No, look at what Jesus is saying in verse 27. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do you see what Jesus did? He didn't chastise them for having desire. He said, let me orient your desires to something that can actually truly satisfy. The problem is that not that our desires, uh, that we have desires. Our problem is that our desires are often disordered and they're often too small. Jesus affirms that they're hungry, that they want to eat, and that they were made to be satisfied He's redirecting them to better paths of satisfaction. Because that's the funny thing about desire. We know that we were made for desire. We were, we were made to be satisfied. And, and yet we're constantly restless, constantly on the move, constantly on to the next thing that may be able to stave off desire if but for a moment. And Jesus said, the problem is not that your desires are there. Your desires are good. They have been disordered by the fall. And I am offering you myself as a way to have your desires reordered until ultimately they find their fullness and their satisfaction in me. Jesus begins with this curious crowd by giving them subtle clues about who he is. But they begin pushing back on him. He says, what must, we be do- what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Listen to what he says. This is the beauty of Jesus' words. What must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowd asks him. Look at how he responds. This is the work of God. What must we do? Nothing, Jesus says. This is the work of God. What are the works that we should be doing? Nothing, Jesus said. This is God's work, singular, to be done. To be doing the works of God. This is the work of God that God has done, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What are we supposed to do? Jesus says, You've got the wrong verb. You've got the wrong subject. You've got the wrong direct object. It's God. It's God that does the work. Verse 30. 
So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What what work do you perform? Our, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Look at what he did again. They, they came back to him with another statement and said, well, okay, so your thing was cool of feeding 5,000 people, but Moses fed people for 40 years. So help us out. Where's all of that? And Jesus, again, lovingly and graciously pushes back. He reframes the statement. He says, everything that you've said is correct, except everything that you said. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread, but it was my father. And it wasn't bread on the ground that was sustaining them, it was the bread from heaven that was sustaining them. And it was my father who was doing it. And my father is continuing to give that bread. It didn't just happen there once with the people of God in in Exodus. No, it continues to happen. My father continues to give bread. And if you would stop for just a minute and look at who you're talking to and listen to who you're talking to, you would understand that the bread is standing right before you. But these are complicated things. See, in all of this, what Jesus is asking them to do is trust. They don't do the work of God. God does the work. God gives us trust. God gives us life. God gives us faith. God does everything for us. He corrects them in their first statement about the works that they must be doing by saying, no, no, it's not the works that you must be doing. It is the work that God is doing and has done. And this is the hardest paradox of it all. God gives us faith. God gives us trust. And it's our responsibility to take these good gifts back to God and return them to his son in gratitude. Do you understand that it is not up to you to come up with a sufficient amount of trust or faith inside of you. It is up to you to receive the gift of faith and trust that God has given you and come and return and bring that to God in gratitude and in thanksgiving. So not only does God do the work of granting us faith and granting us trust, God does the work of providing and continuing to provide bread from heaven. And they hear it. And they see it. In verse 33, the the bread of God is, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And you know what they said? They said what exactly uh, you and I would probably say, that sounds amazing. (laughs) We want that. Just as the woman at the well said when Jesus offered water that will enable her to never thirst again in John chapter 4, she said, give me that water, sir. Even here, he says, there's a bread that comes from heaven that satisfies. And they said in verse 34, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Jesus has said that he is the one that will satisfy. And how do we get this bread? Jesus says, come to me. Come again and again and again and again and again and come and eat your fill because it is only in Christ, it is only in Jesus that we can find ultimately our longings and our desires deeply and fully satisfied. And beloved, God has done it all. God has set the table and God has provided the feast. Listen to how Martin Luther describes this. Luther says that he, Jesus himself, will be the donor, the baker, the waiter, the brewer, yes, the cook, and also the dish and the plate that gives us the imperishable food. We cannot give ourselves this food. We must obtain it from the Son of Man. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that satisfies I'm the one that nourishes and I'm the one that feeds. So you would imagine that there were some that would grumble about this. There were some that would say, this is, this, is, this is more than we can bear. This is more than we can hear. And so we get in now to how Jesus is, is, is requalifying the extent and the scope of the gospel. In verses 41 and following, the, the Jews grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. You know what he's saying. You know what they're saying there, right? Is this not Jesus, the bastard child? The one born out of illegitimate relations that his mother clearly had with somebody? How can you, the carpenter's son, now say that you've come down from heaven? How can you, the carpenter's son, say that you are the one that now has the, the, the bread of life? That you yourself are the bread of life? Because you have to understand that Jesus' strongest words are never towards those who are just honestly trying to figure out who he is. His strongest words are to the religious leaders who are sure that they have the right laws and the perfect light themselves. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and begins to rebuke them. Now, it is fair, legitimately, not very many people can claim they have come down from heaven. Um, so that is a, a bit of a new category. But Jesus looks at the, at the rulers with their right rules and their right relationship that they think they have with God. And Jesus begins to disrupt, to disrupt it. And in verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, don't grumble among yourselves. I really am who I say that I am. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Now, you might first read that and think that this is Jesus being cold and detached. But no. No, Jesus says, I am who I really am. If you come to me, if my Father draws you to me, you will live. And what does this teach us? This shows us that, that at the end of the day, God's heart is overflowing with goodness. 
And that if God is drawing you to Christ, you need not worry or wonder if in fact God really loves you or not. If God is enabling you to see Jesus, if God is stirring in your heart a desire that you would be filled by Jesus, know that those promises don't have some sort of trick at the end of them, that they are good and God is gracious. And if he is drawing you to Jesus, then all the things that Jesus has said are yes and amen and true. God is a good and gracious God, a bestower of gifts and of goodness. And because God does it all and through Jesus we get it all, should bring us great comfort. But, but there's more to it than just this. In verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The beautiful thing is that in John's gospel, John uses this, delight, this, this delightfully unqualified all to speak about the kingdom of God. This delightfully unqualified all, where in Isaiah, all would have been Israel, and now in John's gospel, all is all. All people, every tribe, Every nation, every people, every tongue. This is where the heart of the Father is exposed again, that we see that God is not now just simply calling one nation of people to be his own. God is calling a people from all the nations to be his own. The bounds of the gospel and the extent of the kingdom is global. The great news of a great God who gets a great harvest from his pan-national kingdom is the very heartbeat of the mission of God's people. And those that have tasted and seen that God is good, their desire is that others would taste and see that God is good and that God is satisfying. Do, do you understand how good restaurants make it, especially in an area like ours? Word of mouth there's too many choices. There's too many things to try. There's too much out there. People talk about what's really good and what they've really enjoyed. And isn't that, that the case with us as well, that we, we speak about that which has really satisfied us? We seek about that which has really set us free. The gospel of God's gracious doing it all and us getting it all is the heartbeat of missions because God has satisfied us and sent us to call others to savor in Jesus. In verses 48 through 50, Jesus again goes back, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He is, he is the heaven-sent manna. He is the food for the filling of God's people, not just for Israel, but for God's pan-national kingdom. Anyone may eat of it and not die. Jesus is constantly feeding his people, isn't he? Jesus is the gift that never stops giving. Verse 51 is where Jesus moves us to the, the third part of the sermon. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
So not only is the hope of the world that God has come down from heaven in Christ and the gospel is bound up not in what we do but what Christ has done. And not only is the, the bounds of the gospel not just for Israel but for the, for the entire world, but there is a physicality, there is a, there is a practicality to Jesus' heaven-sent bread. It is earthbound for the world. Jesus is not just God's revelation but humanity's reconciliation. And Jesus will now show us just how he is going to continue even in this present day to nourish and satisfy God's people. Now, before we move into the third part of Jesus' bread sermon, I do want to say this. Let me set my bona fides out really quick for you. I don't believe that the Church of Rome has it right when it talks about the presence of Christ at the Eucharist. But I also believe that John chapter 6 is canonical and is in our Bible. <laughs> And that Jesus did not misspeak when he spoke these words. What I believe what Jesus is talking about here is what would be later instituted as the Lord's Supper. And I believe that this is real. And I believe that we have to wrestle with hard things. So I also recognize that I'm not going to be able to say everything about this text that it says. Those are for conversations later. But I do want you to, to, to walk into the same kind of tenuous place that others who have gone before us have had to walk into, and that is the reality of the implications of what Jesus means, not only in the height of the gospel and the breadth of the gospel, but now the depth of the gospel. Jesus is making a connection between the physical and the spiritual. They are not disconnected things. They do not operate in separate spheres that never have a part of one another. They are intimately connected. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, unless, unless a person is born all over again from above, unless the person is born out of water and spirit, that person cannot even enter the kingdom of God. That unless gives us a pause to think about the waters of baptism and this, this deeply connected physical and spiritual thing that we do with the waters of baptism. They don't just signify something, they actually connect us to something. The actually part is where we get tripped up. It's not actually because simply we've done an action. It's actually because these are physical things that God has instituted to link us to spiritual realities. In John chapter 6, Jesus is challenging the church to come continually to his physical continuation ceremony. If, if in John chapter 3, Jesus is connecting us to his gracious gift of baptism, his, his gracious gift of initiation, a once-for-all physical participation in something that is intrinsically connected to spiritual realities, John chapter 6 is Jesus continually connecting us to his physical continuation ceremony within his church. Are you with me so far? Yes? Okay. Jesus is saying here that the Lord's Supper 
is a repeated altar call, an ongoing, fresh recommitment and entrustment of ourselves to Jesus, the bread of life. We are reminded week in and week out of our trust that we have placed in him and his never failing, never wavering commitment to us. Look at what he says. The Jews disputed among themselves How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Valid question. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 54, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. In verse 54, Jesus doubles down on the visceral description of what he's saying. The the Greek word that he's using here for feed is the word that means chomping down, gobbling up, feasting on, and is used to describe an animal's audible, ravaging eating. Are you seeing why they got a little confused? Are you seeing where you and I get a little confused? Why would Jesus be so in your face about this? Here's why. Jesus actually knows that what he says is true. He actually believes that the people of God feasting by faith on the Son of God is both actually what is happening and can really help the church remain Christ-centered and as such come alive again and again and again. Now, years ago, when I was making the case for why the church should engage in the Lord's Supper on a frequent basis... I'm cool with weekly, by the way. A friend of mine, very well-meaning, came up to me and said, well, pastor, here's my problem. If we partake of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, wouldn't that just begin to rob it of its special meaning? And do you hear what's loaded up in that statement? What's loaded up in that statement is that it is upon you and I to come and bring meaning to this table. It's up to you and I to come and to infuse it with special meaning, to infuse it with power, to infuse it with sentimentality. But if what Jesus said here is true, it is not us that does anything. It is God that does the work. It's God that sets the table. It's God that provides the feast. It's Jesus that feeds his people. It's Jesus that nourishes our faith. It's Jesus that strengthens us. It's Jesus that sustains us. It is not our thing to do. It is Jesus' gift to give. And so before you think that the table would lose its meaning, find yourself located in where the table derives its meaning from. It is not a simple memorial meal where we go to a sad place and remember a sad thing that happened because we were wretched sinners. It is a glorious place where a glorious Savior invites God's people to come and feast on him who is the bread of life. Do you know what great encouragement it is to me? I can completely muck a sermon, which I, never mind, don't go there. (laughs) And that the gospel will still be here. This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. 
This is my, this is my blood which is, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Even those of you with shot through desire and misdirected desire, God invites his people to his table. And what Jesus said was actually true, that by faith we're feasting on him, not a memory of him. Now, it's not to say that Jesus jumps out of the, the throne room of heaven and scrambles down here. Jesus is still ruling and reigning at God's right hand. That's where Luther and Calvin got sideways with one another. But it's by faith, it's through the Spirit that these physical means do spiritual things. Not because of what they become, but because of what Jesus does and how he links us to himself. As we feast by faith on the Son of Man. Real food, the best food, the most nourishing food, verse 55. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The best food is Jesus' flesh, sacrificed on the cross for the sins of the world, trusted with hearts of faith and partaken of by faith as we come around the table. This table is the core of our food pyramid. It's the very essence of what we need to survive. It is Jesus himself who gives meaning to our lives, draws us back to himself, reminds and redirects our affections to be towards him. But you still might be saying, how can you say that we're really feasting on Jesus? The bread just represents him, and the cup just symbolizes things. No, friends, this is the, this is the miracle. This is the mystery. That by his spirit, we're united to him by faith through the humble means of this very meal. These elements are earthly vessels that do that, not because of what I say, It doesn't magically change them, and not because Jesus just hops up and comes on down, but because of the Spirit, because the Spirit makes real what Jesus said was true. We're feasting on him when we eat this meal. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Do you want to know what the Bible's prescription is for you and I to faithfully remain in Jesus? Come to his table and receive him by faith and be nourished by him. We don't have to make things complicated here. We can receive by faith that which is true. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. How do you begin to understand the relationship that Jesus has with his father? Come to him. Come to him at his table and feed and feast on him. You and I are not, um, we are not shamed for having disordered desire. The problem is not that our desires are too great. The problem is that our desires are too small. So maybe your heart is like the disciples and those who were gathered near him that day. Sir, give us this bread so that we might not be hungry. Look, you know why one of the reasons why it was so important for uh, me that we as a church 
come together on Maundy Thursday and share a glorious feast and eat rich food together and then be gathered around the table? Because that approximates what the life of the world to come is. Most of us have grown up around a table that is not a table of of rejoicing and gladness. We've grown up around a table that is, well, let's face it, um, a bit onerous, a bit still and quiet and uh, a little uncomfortable. But here's the thing, Jesus invites us to come and to rejoice with gladness and feast on him. That's why it's a Eucharist, a meal of great thanksgiving. Because he has done the work. He has done the work and spreads the table and invites us to the feast. And so if you're struggling, if you're finding yourself at your wit's end, then come to Jesus. Come and be nourished. Come and be satisfied. And when you find your satisfaction disordered and your desires waning, come again and have your hearts renewed.